Well, good morning again. Uh, Pastor Keith is uh, enjoying some time with family on vacation, so I'm back in the pulpit this week. Uh, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 17 today. We did go ahead and upload another version event, so if you're uh, following along in the Bible app, it just has uh, the scriptures there for you. It makes it a little easier. You can search for Chapel of the Lake, or it will automatically come up if you've got your location on. But I wonder, as you're opening up your Bibles there, if I was to offer you a blessed life, would you take it? Well, my guess is, of course you would. Who doesn't want a blessed life? But then you might be wondering, well, what exactly is a blessed life? And that really is the question. Because some people think a blessed life means a blessed wallet. Some people think that a blessed life means a life free of conflict. Some think a blessed life means a big house or a better job, more stuff. Some think that a blessed life is a retired life, fishing or on a beach. You know, the Bible does promise us a blessed life. It offers this blessed life. But when we talk about the blessed life, the title of our sermon, we want to be sure that we have a biblical view of what exactly the blessed life is. So our text this morning, Jeremiah chapter 17, is going to give us some insight into what the blessed life entails. So that hopefully by the time we're done here this morning, we'll have a better understanding of what the blessed life is and how we can obtain it. So turn with me in your Bibles. We're going we're gonna to actually uh, walk through the entire chapter here this morning, but I'm going to want to jump in at verse 5. So before we get, begin, will you just uh, join me with a quick word of prayer? Dear Lord, we're here to hear from you this morning. Lord, I pray that your word would come through uh, with clarity, that the message that you have for us would uh, be delivered by the Holy Spirit, that it would affect our hearts and minds, and it would change and transform us as we leave this place. Bless your word this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. So jumping in, verse 5, chapter 17. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when he comes, for its leaves remain green. And it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So here in these four verses... You see a pretty clear, evident contrast between the cursed man and the blessed man. And so Jeremiah is painting this picture of two very different realities. The cursed man, the one who trusts in himself, is like a shrub in the desert. The desert that's pictured is a wasteland. It's hot and dry and desolate and harsh. There's no sign of life, no water nearby, only sand with a little bit of salt. Shrubs in the desert only have one destiny, and that's death. 
Its growth is stunted by the lack of water. When the extreme weather comes, when the sun shines, it will surely shrivel and die. So Jeremiah contrasts that with the blessed man, the one who trusts in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by the water. We hear echoes of Psalm 1. We recall that this tree is healthy because its roots are connected to a water supply. The soil all around the tree would be well nourished. The conditions are perfect for growing and bearing fruit. The tree doesn't have to worry when heat comes or drought comes because it's not on its own. It's connected to the life-giving source of water. Its leaves will continue to be green. It will continue to bear fruit as long as, as it's connected to this life-giving source. As you compare the two sets of verses, verses 5 and 6, the cursed man, and verses 7 and 8, the blessed man, what's the key difference? The key difference is the source of their trust. And so the simple key to understanding how to have a blessed life is simple. Trust in the Lord. You want a blessed life? Trust in the Lord. We might put it a different way. The blessed life is a life that trusts in God. So that's all we have to do today. Trust in God. Don't worry about it. We can uh, close our Bibles. I'll pray for us. And we can go ahead and go home. Go trust the Lord. And you kind of chuckle because you realize that it's probably a little more complicated than that. It's not so simple. And so last night I asked our Facebook here at the chapel, our Facebook group, what comes to mind when they hear the phrase, well, trust in the Lord. And we got a few different responses. You could tell it was a church group because the first few responses was trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. So we had some Proverbs 3 there. We had uh, someone say, well, that reminds me of let go and let God or God is good and God is good all the time. Someone mentioned the familiar hymn, trust and obey. We hear this in churches, trust in the Lord. And so it, it, it elicits a, almost an automatic response, especially for those of us that have been around church for a while. But there were also some challenging thoughts that were mentioned as well. Trust in the Lord is sometimes met with, man, that's hard. And I'm wondering if you can relate with that. And you might think that's hard, especially when you begin to think through that, well, to trust in the Lord also means to trust in the Lord when it includes things like pain and suffering and problems. And you see, if we're not careful... Trust in the Lord can become, like someone else mentioned, just a sign that we hang in our kitchen. But that's just about it. If it doesn't go any deeper than a trite phrase or a Christianese or something that we just tell people in the church, we're in danger. Because trust in the Lord sounds great until you lose your job. Trust in the Lord sounds great until you hear the words cancer. Trust in the Lord sounds great until your marriage starts to fall apart. Until you lose that job, you lose a loved one. 
Trust in the Lord sounds like a nice godly thing to say, but when you're facing an addiction that no one knows about, when you have a sin that you can't just seem to beat, when you don't know how you're going to pay your next bill, when you can't seem to shake those thoughts of depression or anxiety, trust in the Lord, if it's all just a phrase, can start to sound pretty empty, pretty hollow. So our aim this morning is to dig in to dig into Jeremiah 17 in our case and to see what it teaches us about trusting the Lord because it's got to be more than just a phrase. It's got to be more than just a saying in church circles because trust in the Lord has the power to bring us the blessed life. And if you're like me, you want the blessed life. But if we keep reading through this chapter, we're presented with another problem right off the bat. It's verses 9 and 10. It's going to serve as the foundation for our first lesson about trust. Verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, these verses present a problem. They're some of the most famous verses, but also some of the most terrifying verses in all of Jeremiah and maybe the Bible, because it's telling us that we can't trust our own hearts. So Charles Feinberg, he says this, if there is such blessing in trusting God, then why does people so generally depend on their fellow humans? Read verses five. And six, why is it that the blessed are not more numerous than the cursed? The answer lies in the innate depravity of the human heart. And it's here that we arrive at our first lesson. Trust requires a new heart. If you want to trust in the Lord, you're going to need a new heart. The verses that we've read so far tell us that not only can we not trust ourselves, we can't trust our own strength, we can't trust the strength of others around us. Now it's telling us that we can't even trust our own heart because it's deceitful, it's desperately sick or wicked, it's unknowable. And God warns that He knows who we're really trusting. He knows what we're thinking, how we're feeling, what's inside of us. And then He says, we will be judged based on what's in our hearts. And it gets tricky because even if we want to do the right thing and we think we're desiring the right thing, our heart deceives us. What we desire, what we want, is not always what we need. And what we think might bring us happiness or even blessing can turn out to bring us just the opposite. But thankfully, we're not left on our own. Throughout Jeremiah, through the other prophets, then even going into the New Testament, we're assured that God has the ability to change our heart, to give us a new heart. Later on in Jeremiah, we'll explore this in more details in a, another week, but the Lord tells His people that the day is coming when He will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's in Jeremiah chapter 31, and, and verse 33 says this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then we see uh, the prophet Ezekiel in multiple different passages, Ezekiel 11 and 30-something, and then also 36. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then we move to the New Testament and we see these same principles. That no one can seek God on their own. That's Romans 3.11. That no one can please God in their flesh. That's Romans 8.8. But we read Nicodemus' interaction with Jesus, John chapter 3, and we learn that when we turn to God in faith, we are born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul puts it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And what it's telling us is this first lesson about trust is really a prerequisite. There's no sense going through the rest of the sermon because if you don't have a new heart, if you haven't been made new, you are unable to trust in the Lord. So we first must turn to God. We turn to God and we ask Him to do a work in our heart to bring us to saving faith so that we may know what it is to trust God. But once we understand that, that we require a new heart, we can move on to the remaining three lessons about trust that we'll see here in this chapter. So I want you to go back with me, first four verses of chapter 17. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their ashram, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you. And I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Here we see Judah in a familiar place. They're in trouble. Their sin has got them in a bind with God and they don't even care. And so once again, Judah gives us a negative example of our second lesson. Worship reveals who we trust. Worship reveals whether or not we trust in the Lord. You see what's happening in these four verses and all throughout the book of Jeremiah is that the people of God have abandoned God. Just like we saw last week, they're running headlong towards their own destruction and they're blind to it. But if you look again, you can notice how God describes the severity of their sin, how it relates to their heart. It is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. This is just showing just how deep, how far, how pervasive the sin of Judah is. And no doubt God is choosing his words carefully here. He's reminding his people of the day that he etched his law on tablets and gave to Moses. But they have rejected God's law. And instead they're trusting in themselves. They're living in blatant sin and idolatry. And they're taking, as it were, a diamond 
and carving and etching in the stone that will be there for generations described by the children who will continue in the cycle of idolatry. All of this has led to their, their worship of false gods and it's through their worship that their trust is revealed. Their trust is in themselves. Their trust is in their own strength. Their trust is in foreign gods. Their trust is in pretty much anything that is not God. That's where Judah is. You even see in verse 11, just another place where they're putting their trust and how foolish it is. Verse 11, like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days, they will leave him, and at his end, he will be a fool. Last week, we saw that the scribes were saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. And here is the same thing. The people of Judah are saying, hey, we're good. We've got riches. Our bellies are full. And... God and Jeremiah together are saying, no, you're kind of like the partridge. You're like, well, what's up with the partridge? I didn't know anything about partridges. That's why I study. Anyway, apparently the deal with the partridge was a partridge would take or sit on eggs that weren't theirs. They just liked having eggs. And they're like, look at me. I'm a great mama bird, partridge. But the thing was, it felt good for a while. It looked like they had a nice nest full of eggs, except when those chicks hatched, they realized that I'm not a partridge and that's not my mother. And so they would leave. And, and this kind of natural example is what Jeremiah points to. And he says, you people who are trusting in riches are like this dumb bird. You think you feel good because look at all the stuff you've got, but don't trust in that because soon it will be gone. And in particular, here it's pointing to the day that God brings judgment they will be shown to be a fool because they had trusted in the wealth that they have accumulated and especially in ways that were unjust. So that's all about Judah. But this principle, worship reveals who we trust, still applies today. Although sometimes it looks a little more subtle. We may not think that we worship idols, but worshiping idols is not just reserved for totem poles or icons. Idol worship is anything that is a substitute for worship of God. And when I say worship of God, I'm not talking about what you plan on doing on Sunday mornings. That's a, maybe a piece, a sliver of your worship. But we're talking about your way of life. Because ultimately, worship is about our response to who God is. And when we take our eyes off Him and we put them on something or someone else, that means we're not trusting God. We're not trusting that God is who He says He is. And this is important because we see this played out in many different scenarios. When we don't give, as God has called us to give, we're basically telling God, well, no, I don't believe that you could possibly take care of my needs. Have you seen my bills? Have you seen my budget? No, I, I can't give. I, I certainly can't be generous or sacrificial here, God. When we don't gather together as the church, we're saying, well, no, God, it doesn't really matter if I'm there or not. I mean, I know what Paul said, but for me, it doesn't really apply. God, I don't really trust what your word says about the body gathered together. When we choose to sin, we're saying, well, God, yeah, I mean, you don't really know what's best. I do. You see, how we, how we worship Reveals who we trust. And when we take our eyes off God and we put anything above Him, we're saying that we don't trust in who God says 
He is. When we think that we can earn favor with God, it's a worship problem because what we're doing is denying His grace. When we're consumed with anxiety and worry, we're saying that, well, God, no, you're not actually sovereign and maybe you do some things, but you're not really in charge of the things that affect my life. This is all part of our worship, how we respond to who God says He is. And this is what Paul was getting at in Romans 12, 1 and 2, when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He didn't say this is your Sunday morning activity. He said this is your spiritual worship. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our worship reveals our trust, and our worship includes the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Everyone's built for worship. The question is, who and how you worship? Because the answer to those questions reveal who you trust. So say you're tracking so far. You've got it. You need a new heart. How you respond to God, how you worship God, reveals your trust in Him. And you're saying, that's me. Hello, I'm in church today. Well, I'm glad you're here. And you're like, so now do I get to go live the blessed life? Does that mean that I'm not going to have any more problems? Is everything carefree from here on out? And again, you know, because you've lived life, that this isn't true. That the blessed life isn't always an easygoing, carefree stroll in the park. And that certainly was not true of the prophet Jeremiah. Look with me at verses 12 through 18, and we're going to come back and walk through them briefly, because this is where our third lesson comes in. Jeremiah transitions here from this compare and contrast, the wickedness of Judah, and then he turns to the Lord. And he says, a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. I have not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. Be not a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those be put to shame who persecute me. But let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed. But let me not be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. Say, what's going on in these verses? And we probably should spend a whole sermon dissecting this a little better. But the big picture is, Jeremiah has been faithful and things still aren't good for him personally. He's being persecuted. He's being mocked. People don't like him. They want to get rid of him. And so here is our third lesson about trust. Trust refines how we react. Trust refines how we react. And this is one of the hard things about trust and why I chose the word refine. Because it usually doesn't just happen overnight. You get a new heart, you trust perfectly all the time, every day. 
But as we trust, it continues to refine how we react, especially to the things and circumstances around us. And so as we continue to lean into who God is, as we worship Him, as we trust in Him, we then develop this day by day, and it begins to shape how we respond to all these external circumstances, both the good and the bad. And so in these verses, Jeremiah really does give us a good paradigm that we can follow as well as we consider how we should respond to adversity while still trusting in the Lord. He starts in verse 12 and 13, and where does his focus go? It goes to the Lord. He worships God for who He is. Remember point one, worship reveals our trust. He goes straight back to God. He says, a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel. He pauses and focuses and sets his attention on the Lord. But then he also trusts and believes in God's word. He's been given God's word. He's said it to the people and he believes it all through this passage. You see him affirming the word of the Lord. He then pleads for God's intercession. Things are going bad He wants it to stop, so he says, God, help me. This is appropriate for you and me. You're going through a hard time. Circumstances are kind of out of your control. Yes, go to God. Say, God, help me. Intercede on my behalf. And in there, you see Jeremiah also relying on God's mercy. Save me and I shall be saved. Heal me and I shall be healed. He knows that it's all dependent on God. It's his desire, it's his want, so he goes to God and he asks. We have the opportunity to ask God for the things that we need and even want. But all through this, even though he still continues to get persecuted, what does he do? He remains faithful. He's committed to the call that God has placed on his life. He says, I haven't run away from being your shepherd. I sent out the message that you gave me. He was still faithful. And then, at the end, he calls for God's justice. We can call for God's justice. I think more often than calling down double destruction on our enemies, what we might rephrase that as, because we are not probably shouldn't be so bold as the prophet of God here, to say, and let your will be done. That's really what Jeremiah is getting at. He's like, I know your word, and I know what's coming, so God, do it. He doesn't know exactly what what it's going to look like, and God's about to give him a set of new instructions here. And we can be the same way. When, When we have trials and circumstances that are out of control, we do the same thing. We worship God for who He is. We continue to believe His word. We plead for His intercession to work on our behalf. We rely on His mercy because we know without it we're lost. We call for His will to be done in our lives and the lives around us. We can apply these principles today. And so lastly, we see one more lesson about trust in this passage. It's the rest of the chapter. For the sake of time, I won't read through it. It's verses 19 through 27. But it's kind of one big thought. Let's put it into two for you. Verses 19 through 23, God tells Jeremiah, go stand at the gate 
and called Judah back to the Sabbath. He says, I want you to go tell the people to start to observe the Sabbath again. And then, for the rest of the set of verses, 24 to the end, 24 to 27, he then does the, if you obey and come back to the Sabbath and and start to observe the Sabbath, then I will bless you. You will have the blessed life. You will prosper if you will just simply observe the Sabbath. But then he pronounces a curse. And he says, if you don't, then you're going to be destroyed and I'm going to consume you with fire. And at this point, you may then be wondering again, well, what could this possibly have to do with us? Because um, that's Judah and we're not Judah. And we're in the new covenant and we're not bound by the old. And, and so we don't have to follow the Sabbath in the same kind of way that the house of Judah is being called to follow the Sabbath. So what could we possibly learn from this scenario? Here's the lesson about trust. Trust results in our obedience. Trust results in our obedience. Why did God choose this particular command? To observe the Sabbath. Especially because we read in verses 1 through 4 and 11 that there's multiple commandments that the people of Judah are breaking. They're worshiping other gods. They're worshiping idols. There's theft. There's covetousness. There's sexual sins going on all over the place. Like, why, why does God focus on the Sabbath? Like, he doesn't even mention that in the list of violations up here in 1 through 4, although I guess they're violating the Sabbath as they worship other gods. Why does he choose This one. And I think what God's pointing to is something bigger than just the rote ritual of keeping the Sabbath day holy. Because it was never supposed to be a rote ritual. Remember, if worship reveals our trust, then how we act or how we obey demonstrates that trust. See, God knew that the people's sin was really a symptom of a deeper problem. They trusted in themselves. They didn't trust God for who he was. And God said, observing the Sabbath is a way for you, Judah, to demonstrate their trust in God. And I think this was particularly important because God goes even back further than the Ten Commandments, than the Mosaic Law. He goes all the way back to the creative order. When God set this in motion, day seven, he rested. He's saying, Judah, I want you to observe the Sabbath. Not because that's the only command he expected them to obey from then on out. I don't think God was saying, well, if you obey the Sabbath and you're going to have the blessed life, you can go ahead and violate all the rest of the commands as much as you want. No, because God knows, we should know, that observing the Sabbath in this context was the best way for God's people to show They trusted in the Lord. What's the best way you can show you trust in the Lord? Obey. Obedience. It's the same principle. Breaking the Sabbath command was not just bad because it was a command, but because it undercut everything that God was. They didn't trust God. But if they would turn back and observed the Sabbath, it was a signal that they had begun to come back to God, that their relationship would be restored. And guess what? If they would do that, then I'm sure the other commandments would follow. They would start to begin 
to follow and trust the Lord with all the other commandments and all the other requirements of the law. Because that's how it works. Trust results in our obedience. The blessed life is the life that trusts in God. If I were to sum it up, maybe in a sentence, an easier sentence, I would say, to trust God is to turn to Him. To trust God is simply to turn to Him. And we see that in every aspect of the trust that we've looked at this morning. We turn to Him to receive a new heart. We turn to Him in worship. We turn to Him in every circumstance. We turn to Him in obedience to His Word. This is the blessed life. And you might be thinking, if you're kind of cynical like me, well, that doesn't sound very blessed. That sounds hard. That sounds like a lot. I want the easy blessed life. That's not the blessed life that God has promised, first of all. But second of all, I encourage you, go find someone who you respect and is godly, Ask them about their blessed life. I can pretty much guarantee they're not going to tell you about all the easy times. You know what they're going to tell you about? How they saw God show up in difficult circumstances. When the world was falling apart. When they didn't think they were going to make it. The blessed life turned to God and saw God work. That's the power of trusting in the Lord. That's the key and the secret to the blessed life. Trust in the Lord. And until you get there, until you do it, until you experience, you have no idea what the blessed life is. You just have some construct of your mind that you think that might be nice. Trust in the Lord. You will see the blessed life. God will prove himself faithful. Every time. It may not always look easy. You might choose some different paths. But what God has for you is what's best for you. And if you will lean in, if you will turn to Him, I promise you, because God promises you, you will be blessed. And the blessing that comes from trusting in the Lord is where you find the most fulfillment, the most joy, the most peace, the most purpose that you'll ever find in this world. You can only experience it through trusting in the Lord. To bring it back to water, John 4, Samaritan woman at the well, she's thirsty. She's like a bush in the desert. She's lost. She's pretty desperately lost. She meets Jesus. You know what Jesus tells her? If you knew who was standing in front of me, you... You would ask me for water. Because the water that I can give you is living water. You'll never be thirsty again. Many of us know that we are all once like the bush. And we didn't transplant ourselves. God transplants us from the desert to a place where we're firmly planted next to the water of His Word so we can reap the benefits of His presence. 
when we're in the presence of the Lord, we're like a tree planted next to the river. No worries, because we're connected to the life-giving source of God Himself. This is what it means to trust in the Lord. This is what it means to have the blessed life. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we don't trust you completely. We know that. Will you help us? Will you show us how you prove yourself faithful time and time again? Will you encourage us with your word? Will you help us see examples of godly and faithful people who know truly what it is to live the blessed life, a life that trusts in you, a life that is a continual turning to you? Lord, help us. Help us live out our calling in our new, with our new hearts. Let our worship be a reflection truly of who you are. Lord, help refine our responses and reactions to life circumstances so that our trust will continue to grow and deepen. Lord, help us obey. Obey so we can reap the benefits of your blessings here on this earth. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.